Jewish audio on Chabad.org. This is again in conversations with Chana. I'm Chana Weisberg. I'm editor of the Jewishwoman.org. I'm joined today with a special guest, Naomi Friedman, who is going to be speaking to us about near-death experiences. Are near-death experiences real? Are they part of Jewish sources? Naomi Freeman has studied near, near-death experiences for the last many, many years. She's interviewed countless people on this fascinating topic, and she's joining us today to ex- help us understand a little bit more about this uh, phenomenon. Welcome, Naomi. Hello. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Hannah. How are you? Baruch Hashem, very well. How about you? Okay. Okay. So today we're talking about near-death experiences. First of all, what is a near-death experience? For those of us that don't really know, what is a near-death experience? Okay. So near-death experience is the term that was given to the phenomena by Raymond Moody when he started to study it in the 1970s and published his first book, Life After Life. Uh, Basically, a near-death experience is an event of clinical death when a person, for whatever reason, a heart attack, an accident, an allergic reaction, experiences clinical death, where the heart stopping, breathing stopping, and so on, and returns to life with an experience to share with us. And usually the experience involves seeing themselves hovering above the body, um, traveling at a very high rate of speed through a tunnel, um, emerging from the tunnel into a world of light, mm. having f- uh, amazing feelings of peace, tranquility, love, joy, um, complete release of all pain and suffering from the physical world. And uh, in many cases, these people have a life review um, in many cases, they have a meeting with um, loved ones who passed before them. And in many cases, the loved ones who passed before them are motioning this way and saying, go back, it's not your time. Yeah. Usually, the people having the experience do not want to go back because that world is so much better than ours. It's a world of love and light. And uh, they want to. Re- they don't want to return, but usually they are made to return, uh, being shown that there is no choice, or that they have a mission to accomplish, things to learn, things to do, and so on. In some, in some more intense and longer experiences, more is more is lived from the other world, including a few lucky individuals who were blessed to have the experience of being in front of what they call the loving living light, which we understand to be the presence of the creator. Interesting. Wow. So actually one of the viewers is asking, is, does this include someone who's in a coma? Is that considered a near death experience with someone who woke up from a long, you know, a long respite and in a coma, would that be considered a near death experience or is it more that they actually lost their life? So usually somebody who lost their life, but there have been a few events of people who were in a coma and when they returned, they had uh, they had, had this experience. So it wouldn't just be that they were dreaming or hallucinating or anything like that? Okay, so there has been a lot of uh, scientific research into these experiences to figure out what's really going on and is it hallucination or a dream? Um, 
So as I mentioned before, the first published book and and research is the book by Raymond Moody, Life After Life, published in 1975. So he has 100 patients that he interviewed who had a near-death experience. And in addition to reporting um, their experiences of floating above the body, traveling through a tunnel and all those experiences, they also spoke about things that they witnessed uh, that were happening in the room while they were dead. Mm-hmm. So they came back with this evidence. There is also, and they actually was corroborated after with the people who were in the room. I guess with the doctors or the that, medical. That's team. right. That's right. Oh. For instance, it was uh, many years ago. Um, the New York Times published uh, published an article on near death experiences, and in it, um, it tells the story of a certain individual who was in the hospital. And as he was in his bed, he had a heart attack. His heart stopped. Mm-hmm. And that triggered the alarm. And the nurse came running and she saw what happened. She knew that she needed to inject him with a specific medication to restart his heart. But she needed to get it from the pharmacy, which was in the bottom floor of the hospital. So she, oh, ran, wow. she ran out of the room. She went to the elevator. The elevator was taken. So she ran down the stairs. She got wow. to the pharmacy. She called the pharmacist by his first name. And she said, I need, and she said the name of the drug. She grabbed the drug. She got back out. This time the elevator was there. She took the elevator and ran back to the room, injected the patient, and restarted his heart. Wow. So how long was his heart stopped for? Um, Could be a couple minutes. Sometimes it's even longer. The next day, the patient said, thank you, Nurse Mary, for saving my life. Mm. She asked him, how did you know that it was me? You know, you were dead. You couldn't have known. Right. You couldn't right. have known you were dead. And he said, "Well, I was. I was in the room. I was hovering above my body in the room, and I trusted you. So when you ran out of the room, I, I went with you and I followed you. And he went oh, on wow. to tell her, you went out and the elevator wasn't there. So you ran down the stairs. You went into the pharmacy. You called oh, the pharmacy wow. by his first name. He told her the first name. You asked for this medication. He said the name of the medication." And then when you injected me, I was sucked back into my body. Wow. Wow. There are many, many stories that are like that. Like this one. Yes. So, Nomi, you are someone who is a teacher. You're very learned. You, you t- teach a lot of Judaism, a lot of Torah. Um, you a lot of Hasidus, a lot of Kabbalah. I'm wondering what got you into these near-death experiences? What's a good Uh, Jewish woman getting into the (laughs) near-death experiences? And I know you've been studying it for a number of years, probably like over 10 years. So what, what is it that pulled you to study it and to understand more about it? Did something happen to you or no? So yes and no, I did not have a near-death experience, but I'll get to my own experience later. Uh, Near-death experiences are fascinating because we read so many things in the books um, and they're so abstract in the books of Hasidus and Torah and so on. But these people, they're talking to you about what they lived. It's not a book. It's a person who says, and a regular person. And there are millions of people who had these experiences, not just two or three, millions. And they're telling you what they lived. But what really pulled me to it was that 
these people, when they came back, they were so changed. They were so transformed. They were on fire with love. And what they saw in that world is helping us so much to know how to live in this world while we are here because they saw what is what is worthy, what is valuable, what is appreciated in the light of eternity. And that is so inspiring. So how do they see that? I mean, they were there for like two minutes. It was just, it wasn't like they experienced a long period of time there. But are you saying that that reality just gave them a whole new perspective on our reality? Like, how do you see that? Correct. How did it change them? Correct. So first of all, we are saying they were dead for about two minutes. Um, some people were dead for a few minutes, actually, including um, um, uh, the, the rabbi from uh, Great Neck, New York. Mm-hmm. Um, Gaisinski, correct. Rabbi Gaisinski, who was dead for 40 minutes. His heart had stopped for 40 minutes. So the long, which is very, very unusual. Usually people don't come back after that long. They are mm-hmm. given a time limit. But in that world, there is no feeling of time. Mm-hmm. So a person could be dead for two minutes and have a life review of 85 years of life. And come back with that life review. Now, the way that this is life changing is when people are there, a few things happen. One of them is they become very aware in no uncertain terms that we live forever, that death is just moving on to a different place. A different place. And what they actually call it is home. Hmm. When they are going through that tunnel to the other dimension, they are thinking to themselves, oh, I'm going home. Right. And, uh, and while, while there, people... Who and, are- and it's interesting that you mentioned also that not only are they going home, but you said they don't want to be here. Like they had to be forced to go back here. I guess that Correct. really shows the beauty of that place and how it really feels like it's home. Correct. Because that's right. where we came from. Right. Wow. And, um, and when people have their life review, which happens to approximately half of the people who have a near-death experience. In their life review, they see their entire life, usually from birth to death, with fine detail. And, you know, since you're mentioning Torah, that it it is mentioned in the Talmud that when, at the time of death, a fellow even as a trivial conversation is mentioned in the hour of the, in the time of death. So that life review has everything in it. Everything we did, everything we said, it's all there. So in a minute of being there, a person could have a life review of 85 years or whatever amount of time they've lived and nothing is missing and everything is in fine detail. And what's really transformational and life changing is the feeling of love, intense, intense love, the feeling of being loved and accepted and that love is the real thing. And in that near-death experience, as they're seeing their entire life in review, as if you're watching a movie, it's not just them watching, but reliving. And as the person relives everything that they have done, they feel in their own being, in their own soul, every emotion that was in any event in their entire lives as they cause others to experience it. So wow. that, that, sounds, 
That sounds very, very intense. You know, I mean, just to like, just to absorb what you're saying, you're seeing every single interaction that you've had, positive or negative, and every kind of feeling that you caused other people to feel, which could have been sadness or yes, that's, that's, that's really intense that you should be feeling all that. And And yet you're saying, sorry. And that's why they change. That's why they change. Because <laughs> right. they know when I'm going back and staying, I'm going to have right. to live with that forever. Right. Wow. And yet you say they're still feeling this overwhelming love. Like, why aren't they feeling this judgment or this sadness or this? That's very interesting. You know what? They all agree on one point, And it's also brought in Torah. The Baal Shem Tov mentions this, that it's not a judgment it's self-judgment. You know, in Jewish sources, that world that we call Olam Hava, the world to come, is usually called Olam Haemet, the world of truth. So while we are living in the physical reality, we are constantly fooling ourselves. It's okay to do this because I need it because of this reason or that reason. When we view our lives again in that world of truth, It's impossible to hide. It's impossible to make excuses. Everything is evident. Everything we have done, said, even thought. And this could be a little bit intimidating, but in that world, even intentions are as evident as actions. Mm -hmm. Wow. So these people really change because they know uh, that once we are gone, we will live forever after with those choices we made while on earth. Wow. I would think that there would also be regret, though. Like, why wouldn't a person feel regret in those moments or, like, yes. self-critical over what we've done or how we've reacted? Right. Because- and also, why wouldn't we want to come back and rectify that? Like, why would they want to go into that world? Yes, so there were cases of people who asked to go back to rectify their actions, to live a a renewed life. And there were people who said, even though I lived a flawed life, I still want to stay here because it's beautiful here. There is no stress, there is no pain. So it's a better world. But yes, there were people who did want to come back to rectify and asked for that, and it was granted, yes. So you mentioned like a few Jewish sources. Is Is there Jewish sources on this? idea of near-death experiences in general? There is a story in the Talmud, in the tractate Pesachim, page 50, noon, that tells the story of Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi. And Rabbi Yossi, the son, was very ill, and he was lying in bed, and his father was sitting next to his bed. Rabbi Yehoshua ben Levi was sitting next to his son's bed, watching over him. And the son, unfortunately, died. Now, in those days, to check if somebody had died, they would put a feather in front of their nose to mm-hmm. see. Because, you know, by Jewish law, you're not allowed to touch somebody who's on the brink of death so that you don't facilitate the death. So they had no breath. So the father observed this, but nonetheless, he stayed next to his son's deathbed after he had passed. And a little bit later, the son came back to life. He opened his eyes. He was breathing again. And his father, being a Talmudic scholar, wanting to learn from everything, he asked him, Maraita, what did you see? Because he was intrigued by, you know, what had happened while he was dead. 
And, and the son responded, I saw an upside down world. An upside down world. So the sages explain what is the meaning of an upside down world? Because his father responded to him, you didn't see an upside down world. You see, you saw a world established the right way, a real, a true world. So basically the sages explain the idea of an upside down world is many who were up in this world were down in that world and many who were down in this world were up in that world meaning that we have in this world powerful people and celebrities and people who are admired because of things that are really physical and non-transcendent and not important. So when they go to the other world, all their glory and fame is not there because it wasn't any great accomplishment. But you can see people here who are very humble and very small, they could be a nurse or a teacher or a counselor. And these people's lives are devoted to helping others. And mm. whoa, that's what really counts. So yeah. in the other world, they are really above and they are filled with incredible light. I guess that gives us a perspective on when things are not going so well in our lives. We shouldn't just think that it's not, you know, it's there for a reason. And that doesn't mean just because it looks that way that it's, it's all bad, but it might be looking very different as long as we're doing the right things and headed in the direction that we should be. That's it. It's very different. Wow. That, that's it. There was another thing that Rabbi Yossi said to his father. He said, and I also heard a voice. The voice said, lucky is who, whoever comes here and his learning is with him. There are many ways to interpret that, but on a basic level, the importance of learning. We just don't just go through life. We need to learn. Learning is very important. Of course, in Tanya, there are more explanations on that, but we'll stick to the basics and, you know, the importance of learning, which is stressed in the near-death experiences. You're talking about learning specifically Torah, Torah sources, or just learning Torah in general? Is, I can give you a story to illustrate this. But remember that near-death experiences are universal. They're not just for Jewish people. So people who were told, go back, it's not your time, were told sometimes you have things to do, and sometimes they were told you have things to learn. Mm -hmm. But I would like to share with you an amazing story that I heard from Rabbi Mendel Glukowski from Rehovot when he was visiting Toronto. And you might have even been there when he told the story because we were living in Toronto in those days. So he told that he moved from Toronto to, to Rehoboth in Israel to open a Chabad center. And one day he says an elderly woman by the name of Sarah, and I don't remember her last name, came in and said, Rabbi, you know, I moved here from America and I speak English. I'm too old to learn a new language. I can't understand. It's Israel. All the classes are in Hebrew, and I don't understand. Would you please give a Torah class in English? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I'll tell you what. If you organized it, I'll teach it. So she said yes, and she went. She sat with her phone and called every person she knew in the area who could, who could understand English, and she organized the class. And every week, maybe Monday at 7.30 p.m., they all got together and they learned the Torah class in English. Mm -hmm. This went on for years. Um, 
This went on for years until one day she came back and she said, you know, Rabbi, I'm getting too old. I can't live alone anymore. I'm moving to Tel Aviv to be close to my son. He will take care of me. And he was so sad to see her go. But, you know, he said goodbye and thank you so much for organizing the class. And I hope to see you again. Okay. Two years passed that he did not hear a thing from this lady. And after two years, one day his phone rang. And a man identified himself as Sarah's son and said, um, well, right away, the Rabbi Grukowski asked, how is your mother? And he said that his mother had had a, a cardiac event two days before. She had been in a coma in the hospital for two days. And this will answer your previous question. She had been in a coma for two days. And today she opened her eyes. And the first thing she said is, where is Rabbi Glukovsky? I have to talk to him. Whoa. So, so, uh, so Rabbi, would you please come and see my mother? Because the doctors had told him that they didn't think his mother would make another 24 hours. Mm-hmm. So Rabbi Glukovsky jumped in his car and drove to Tel Aviv, came to the hospital, walked in the room and found... A very elderly, weak, and dying Sarah in her deathbed. And as soon as he came in, she broke out into a big smile. And he said, Sarah, how are you? How are you feeling? And this lady's like, eh, feeling, schmuling, who cares? He says, Rabbi, while I was in that world, they showed me my crown. He said, she said, in the past two days, I have been to the other world and back. And during my visit, they showed me my crown. I have this beautiful crown, which was made of her good deeds. And Rabbi, the centerpiece of my crown, the precious stone in the center of my beautiful crown, is the Torah class in English. I wanted to talk to you to ask you to please not stop that class, which I started. Wow. Now the rabbi almost died because (laughs) to hear such an experience. And uh, obviously from a dying person, you know, it's even more profound. So he assured her that as long as people would attend, he would continue that Torah class in English. Do you know what the Torah class was on? What was the subject? Or Um, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it it caused a lot of people to do a lot of good deeds, that it was considered the centerpiece of her crown. Yes. And it caused a lot of people to learn Torah every week. Wow. Beautiful. Yes. Yes. Um, So you mentioned that Jewish people and non-Jewish people both have these experiences. Have you, in in the research that you've done on near-death experiences and the interviews that you've done, have you noticed that there was a difference in the type of experience that Jews or non-Jews had in what they saw or what they experienced when they came to the next world? Yes. So I was very curious about that because at first, when my curiosity was open to this idea, I started reading whatever was available and whatever was available was universal. So I was reading universal near-death experiences and seeing that as people go to the other world, they feel what they made others feel, and they are aware of God's existence and and God's infinite love for every person and every creation. And they come back wanting to be kind and loving and so on. But I was curious if there was more to it for Jewish people. Mm -hmm. So I should stress a little point here that we are talking about 
near death experiences. So not people, so not people who died and stayed, right. but people who died and came back. Oh, right. So we have to be aware that we're only talking about the beginning stages of death mm-hmm. and not the forever after. That we can get sometimes from souls who passed and came to us with messages. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, but the near-death experience is only the beginning stages. So right. what I saw with that most prominent is the fact that quite a few of the people I, in, I interviewed about their their episode spoke about a base din, a tribunal, a court of judges. Mm-hmm. And that I found only in Jewish people. And it's very interesting. Yeah. And, and another thing that I found with Jewish people was there was, again, so the, the near-death experience usually has a pattern, but every person experiences it differently. Mm-hmm. And just like, I could give this example, just like we are all the same but different, mm-hmm. like we all have two eyes and nose and mouth and two ears and so on, but they are the same, but they're also so different that we can differentiate each other. So the near-death experience has this common pattern, but at the same time, it's custom designed for the individual. So there are individual nuances. So this one young man that called me to tell me his story told me that he did not grow up, he grew up Jewish, but not religious. He did have a bar mitzvah and he did read from the Torah, but he and his family were not practicing. Uh, like the details of Judaism, like Shabbat and kosher food and so on. So um, even though he was 18 years old, he had an infection in his heart, which caused him to have a cardiac arrest. Hmm. Um, And he said when he was in the other world, in addition to seeing his entire life, he said, I also saw a Sefer Torah. I saw a scroll of the Torah. And it was like hovering and turning. So he said, it began with the first sentence of the Torah, Bereshit by Elohim, and I read the entire thing until the end. And I read the entire thing in just a few minutes that I was there. So again, there is no time there. But that was... Was he someone who was learned in Torah, like that he would be able to do that, or he was not? No, he had learned to read the Torah for his bar mitzvah. Mitzvah, and that was it. And yet here he was reading the entire Torah. Wow. Yes, and in his experience, he was presented with a a scroll of the Torah, and he read it from beginning to end in the spiritual world. So that would be one nuance in Jewish experiences. There is also a story. So this was a non-practicing Jew. The, I also interviewed a practicing Jew who was a Hasidic Jew from Borough Park, who his wife had died young, unfortunately, and he was in his late 40s and he needed open heart surgery. And he had a few young children, like teenage children. And um, the doctor told him, don't worry, it's a very short and simple surgery. But unfortunately, there were complications and the surgery lasted many more hours. There was an infection and he needed to spend several days with his chest open, draining the infection. And um, and he, they put him in an induced coma, mm-hmm. in an induced sleep for several days. When he woke up, he woke up to the voice of his son saying, 
Good Shabbos, Tate. Like Shabbat Shalom, Father. And um, he responded, regards from mommy. And his son was shocked because his mother was dead. And his father, his son said, what did you say? And the father said, regards from mommy. What do you mean? And he said, well, while I was in the coma, I heard your mother, I, I, I traveled through a tunnel. And then I didn't see her, but I heard your mother's voice whispering in my ear. And she was saying, I need to ask you a big favor. Take the children and bring them up in the way of Torah and awe of heaven and awe of God. Um, and I cannot come back, but you can. She was already buried, obviously. So, so she said, I cannot come back, but you can. So you need to go back and you need to do this favor for me, which is bring up the children in the way of Torah and of heaven. And mm -hmm. I will do whether I, whatever I can from here. But again, I'm asking you this favor that you should do your part there. Wow. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. so I, I guess we are... On the other end of the tunnel, we are greeted by people that we know in this world or relatives of ours or dear ones or loved ones. Correct. To communicate with them. Yes. Wow. So you said the Jewish experience was more of a Jewish tribunal, like a court of law. Did people tell you what that was like? That sounds a little, again, like more of the scary side. <laughs> okay. So I, I can share with you some stories. Uh, I'll share with you one, but... But there was one young man, he was 17 years old, when, uh, when he died from some uh, overdose of medication, not drugs, but medication. And he said he was in front of the tribunal, and he said they made me feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. I was not afraid. They mm -hmm. were kind, and they made me feel comfortable. And I saw my entire life in front of them, but there was no fear. Mm -hmm. And he did say that he had a good life. Yeah, he had been a nice person. But I would like to share with you the story of my friend Liba. Sure. So Liba was around 20 years old when she was at a swimming pool and she wanted to dive in. So she went up the ladder and in front of her there was another person. As this person dove into the pool, the entire ladder collapsed. Oh, and Liba, who was at the top, came crashing down, banged her head on the cement floor and died. And she told me the whole experience uh, twice. And we are good friends today. Yeah. So she, she said, I was floating above the pool and above my body. And I saw my body next to the pool and the blood around the head and the people running and coming, um, screaming for an ambulance and so on. And um, and I was chill. I was relaxed. I was fine. Nothing was <laughs> bothering me. And then after a while, I started rising, 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 and traveled through a tunnel, exited the tunnel in another world, found myself in front of this tribunal. And she described it in very specific ways. She said it was a half circle of judges. The ones on the right, and I could not see their faces, the ones on the right side were all saying um, she's so young, she needs to live, we'll send her back. Mm -hmm. And the ones on the left side were saying, no, she died, she came here, she let her stay. And they were going back and forth. She said she did not understand their, their words. 
but she did understand the ideas mm-hmm. that we were saying. In the center of that half circle, there was a being of light whose light was so intense that she said, I could not distinguish who was within that light. Mm-hmm. But after both sides expressed their opinions, and again, if you if you know Torah and Hasidus, you can understand that these are the sides of Hasid and Givura in the right and in the left sides. Mm-hmm. Kindness and severity. Exactly. So um, as both sides finished going back and forth, this, this, this giving their opinions, the light uh, being in the center sort of banged and some kind of whatever table was there. And with that bang, she understood the verdict was that she's staying there. Mm-hmm. And she said, I was perfectly fine with staying there. But at that moment, another light entered from the side. And she said, this was my grandmother who had passed away a few years before. And my grandmother started crying, begging and pleading that they should send me back to my life and my body because I was so young. And I couldn't understand my grandmother either because she spoke Yiddish and I didn't know Yiddish. I knew Hebrew and English. But she said she understood just a few words in any case. This grandmother was shining with this incredible, incredible light. She said my grandmother was radiating more light than the sun. Wow. And what was giving the grandmother this incredible light? So Liba explained to me that her grandmother lived in the time of the Holocaust, but she lived in America. And she would find out when a ship was coming from Europe with people escaping the war, and she would go to the port and she would stand waiting for the ship. And when the people came off of that boat, she would greet them with a smile and kind words. She didn't have money to give them. She didn't have apartments for them to live in. She didn't have jobs to give them, but she had so much love and kindness. She welcomed them with an open heart. And she told them, don't worry, this is America. Here, nobody will persecute you. Nobody's trying to kill you. You will be okay. You will find a job. You will find a place to live. Everything's going to be just right. And she made a world of difference without even spending money. As as she got older, and thank God the war was over, uh, in her old age, after her children grew up, got married, and left the home, her husband sometimes would come home at night and not find his wife. But he knew that there was a hot dinner waiting for him in the oven. And he knew where his wife was. She was helping people in the hospital. She was visiting. She was coming to homes of elderly people who could not do their own grocery shopping or cooking. She was coming to the homes of ladies who had just given birth and taking care of the older children and cooking and organizing everything that needed to be done. And that was how she spent her life. When she went to the beyond, her light was so great that, as Liba said, she was radiating more than the sun. Wow, that's that's really that's so beautiful, so touching. And, and I'm taking two two messages really from that. Number one, that I mean, the beauty of good deeds and kindness is so spectacular. Mm-hmm. And yes. obviously, this woman radiated from all that she did. Yes. But I'm also taking the message that. 
you know, she came to tell her she has to go back. She was pleading for, on behalf of her granddaughter. And we often ask, you know, we often beseech people who have been, to, who are, have departed, relatives of ours, our ancestors, the Rebbe, you know, people to to ask to to pray for us on our behalf. Mm-hmm. See, here it was actually a relative who prayed and created a different outcome for her. Correct. I didn't get to tell the end, but yes. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Tell us. <laughs> yeah, because I was sort of finished, but I forgot to put in the ending, which was after this grandmother cried and begged and pleaded, the tribunal rediscussed the case. And the judges on the right and on the left expressed their opinions again in a different manner, probably. And the being of light in the center again banged. And with that bang, Liba said, I felt myself pulled downward like a speck of dust absorbed by a vacuum cleaner down. And I went down, 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 down. And I slammed into my body and opened my eyes in the hospital as the doctors were finishing to sew up my head. Wow. Incredible. Really incredible. She still has this scar. Ah, <laughs> a scar that will remind her of a good things, I guess. Wow. Mm-hmm. And she's an incredibly kind and loving person. Wow. Yes. Did you notice that there was different perceptions in how, in other words, the way that we think of God, did that affect people in how they experience their near death experience? Like if we experience God as a loving God or a kind God, or did they see the light in that way or did it make no difference? You know, if we see God in a more judgmental way or, you know, as this fear mongering kind of punishing God, did, did that make a difference to how people saw it in the near, in their near death experience? No, it was um, all this love of everyone God. Everyone I am aware of experience the divine presence as they call it, the living, loving light. Light, beautiful. The living, loving light. Wow. This one man that I was telling you about before, who, who was in front of the tribunal and they were kind to him and they made him, you know, reassure him that he, he doesn't need to be scared. So he said when he died, his first experience in the other world was being in the presence of the living, loving light. He said, if you want to get a clue of what it's like, because all near-death experiences will tell you the same thing. It is impossible to explain or describe the experience because we don't have words in our vocabulary Hmm. to express what's in that dimension. Hmm. Um, There are colors that don't exist here. There are flowers that don't exist there. There is music that doesn't exist there. And the experience is you know, just so transcendental that we don't have the words. But he did say like this, if you want to have a little bit of a grasp of what I felt like when I was in front of the living, loving light, which I understood to be the the presence of the creator, he said, gather up in your mind every experience of joy and happiness you had in your entire life. Make a big package of joy and happiness that you've experienced in your entire life, as many years as that is, and then multiply it by a million. Wow. Multiply it by a million. All your joy that you ever had but times a million, and that's not even it. What incredible, incredible joy I felt 
in the presence of the living, loving light, which I understood is our creator. Amazing. And, yes. And he went on to say that then he also, after after being in, the, in front of the divine presence, he says, I was there for a while. There again, there is no time there. So I don't know how long. Then I went on to another space. And I met my grandparents who had died in the Holocaust mm-hmm. and we exchanged love with each other. And the interesting point here is that he had never met them in his lifetime. Wow. And he had never even seen their pictures because everything was destroyed in Europe. Sure. So he had never even seen these grandparents' pictures, but he said, but when I was there and they welcomed me, I knew who they were and they knew me. And we just exchanged love. Wow. And the third uh, stop, so to speak, for this young 17-year-old was the, the tribunal, the, the, judge, the judges, the court. And he said, um, they made me feel comfortable. And in front of them, I saw my entire life. And he said, when you see your life review, it doesn't all show the same. It doesn't all appear equal. There are certain things that are sort of like highlighted that you are made to realize, oh, I have to pay attention. This is important. Mm -hmm. And he said, "Um, I reviewed the part where I was in school. He was still in school. I was in school and there were bullies. And I stood up against the bullies to protect the bullied children. I wasn't afraid of the bullies and I stood up against them to protect the others. And that I was shown in my life review. That was the most important thing I ever did. Had a good life and everything was good. But this, wow, that was I like that a lot. Wow. Yes. And then he said, and then he said, he had a different reaction than others. He said, but what about my father and my mother? What about my sisters? I'm only 17 years old and there is so much I wanted to do with my life. And as he said that, he opened up his eyes and he was in his body. He was there. Wow. He was in his body. Incredible. Yes, I Incredible. So, we're running out of time, but can you tell us a little about how people's lives have changed after this experience? And I guess this is what really pulled you to study the near-death experiences. Yes. So one man said, when I came back, I was on fire with love. Mm -hmm. I was given so much. I was infused with so much love that I was on fire with love to just give love to everyone. Mm -hmm humans, animals, plants, just just give love, radiate love. And the majority of the the people that come back from such an experience, they become obsessed with helping others, Mm -hmm. literally obsessed. In addition to the other things that we learn from near-death experiences, the power of uh, rectifying your life, the power of prayer, the power of learning, all of those very, very important things, and that every mitzvah, every good deed, This is something this fellow who was a young man at the time of his experience told me. He said, today, this is how his life has changed. He said, today, I run to do a mitzvah. And my friends tell me, you are stupid. You could spend a few more hours in your office and make so much more money. You are so successful. Why are you always the one who's running out to do a mitzvah? And he said to me, because he didn't share his experience with everyone, He said to me, you know, I know that 
I'm not stupid because every mitzvah I do is a diamond that belongs to me forever. So when I hear somebody needs help, I run. When I heard there is any mitzvah to do, I run. This is my my light of eternity, my diamonds forever after. So yes, their lives are very changed in so many ways, very powerfully. Wow, that's that's an important message. Mm-hmm. Are you are you planning on writing a book with all your these interviews and experiences that you that maybe you help me? Okay, because <laughs> <laughs> it's a great message what you have to to share. Okay, is there any parting message you'd like to 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 share with our viewers? So there are two parting uh, sentences that I would like to share. Uh, there was one man who was not a very kind person. He didn't have such a nice life and he died in an accident and he went. And in the other world, he found himself in front of this presence of light. And this presence of light asked him a question that I think is very profound, very moving and very impactful. This being of light asked him, What did you do with the life I gave you? And I think that this is a very powerful question to live our lives with, to know that at the end of the tunnel, there is a question waiting that one day we need to answer. What did you do with the life you were given, which is a gift? What did you do with the life you were given? Wow. Yes. Yes. You were given a life for a purpose and you need to use it well. And the second parting sentence that I would like to leave you with comes together with my experience. So unfortunately, my father died young at the age of 55, and I wasn't prepared for it. And he was misdiagnosed. In any case, I was very close with my father. I'm an only daughter with one brother. And after his parting, I felt like I never had an opportunity to have closure, to say goodbye. I was not expecting him to go. So at the day of the Shloshim, that's when after a month, we have a ceremony in the cemetery and we go pray. So at the end of prayers, everyone left and I stayed next to my father's grave. And I did something that later I learned you should not do. Uh-oh. I asked my father that I wanted to see him again. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't do this because we are not allowed to disturb the peace of the souls who have gone on to the other world. And coming down to this world just to visit us, it's, it's like a long, difficult and challenging, not such a pleasant um, vacation, <laughs> not, okay. not such a pleasant trip for the soul. So I did not know that at the time. And I asked this from my father. Now, I had heard stories of people who were visited by a parent or a grandparent who had departed, and they were visited in a dream. So I went to sleep that night expecting that if my father is going to come visit me, he will come in my dream. Sure. He didn't. So he didn't come not one night, not two, three, a week. Okay. I said, it's not meant to be just because I want to have closure doesn't mean my father has to come visit me. I was very busy raising a young family and teaching and so many things. I completely gave up on the idea and I forgot about it. And a couple of months passed. Um, In those days, we were living in Vancouver and um, the Chaban house brought 
Rabbi Reichik, the original Rabbi Reichik who first came to the West Coast of the United States to be a, a Chabad rabbi in California. And he came to speak to us and gives us words of inspiration and strengthening, which was wonderful. Um, that evening, all the ladies in the community sat on chairs in a very large hall in the Chabad Center with the rabbi in the open end of the U shape of chairs and myself like pretty much across the rabbi in the center of that U. And he was speaking and I was listening. In the middle of Rabbi Reichik's speech, somebody entered the room who was not in a physical body. Mm. It was my father. And he entered the room and he was at the other end of this very large hall, hovering closer to the ceiling than to the floor, but not on the ceiling, just like three quarters of the way up. And I saw him extremely clearly, like I see you now. Mm. And I was shocked. And I felt the tears on my cheeks because here was my father in spirit who had just, I had just lost him a short few months before. And then I settled in the experience and I accepted that he was there. And when I calmed down, he gave me a message, mind to mind, because there is no speaking in that world. He said to me, call me by my name. And he said to me, Nomi, do as many mitzvahs as you can, because Mashiach is coming soon. Mm-hmm. So do as many good deeds as you can, because, you know, Mashiach is coming. And that is when all of the good things we did are going to be shown back to us and we will receive whatever we planted. We will sow whatever we planted. So that is my second message I would like to leave the people with. Do as many mitzvahs as you can because Mashiach is coming soon. Well, I guess they're both related. What have you done with the life I've given you is doing the mitzvahs that you need to do to bring Mashiach. Exactly. Right. Beautiful. Yomi Freeman, thank you so much for joining us today. It was fun. It was it was great. I hope we'll see you. I hope we'll, I hope you'll come visit soon. I hope so too. Your daughter, we'll, we'd love to see you around here. We'd love to see you too. Thank you, thank you. Nomi Freeman is a an expert and in interviewing people and has spent many many years studying near death experiences. Thank you so much for joining us and for enlightening us with your knowledge and your studies. Thank you, Nomi. Thank you, Hannah.